everyone, this is Jamie Allabach coming at you from the Peppered Podcast, where I bring seasoned talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. My guest today is Bob Burke. Bob has been a consultant in the natural, organic, and specialty products industry since 1998. Uh, he has worked with hundreds of companies and brands in this space, providing business and marketing planning, budgeting, uh, pricing, distribution, broker selection, management, and much more. He's an author, advisor, keynote speaker, moderator, and board member for dozens of companies. Bob is one of the country's leading authorities in natural and organic products. All right, so let's get into some season talk. Bob, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, Happy to be here. And we're really glad to have you. So this topic of organic and natural and better for you foods and beverage has been a major initiative for companies across the globe for years. Some are doing really great things in this space. Others are struggling. Some are screwing up big time. And others yet, sadly, just aren't even in the game yet. So, Bob, I wanted to have you on the show so you could bring some some insight and advice to uh, the food and beverage marketers and brand managers that listen to the show. Give them some direction in this space. We've seen incredible growth uh, within the natural and organics products category over the past 20 plus years. What are your thoughts on what's driving this? Well, I think that marketers are finally starting to uh, meet consumers where they've been heading for for quite a long time. Uh, I've been in this business now for, for quite a while. I've been consulting for over 20 years Prior to that, I ran marketing and sales for Stonyfield, the yogurt company, and the whole interest in where our food comes from, uh, transparency around uh, supply, consumers in general making the so-called diet-disease connection. You know, there's a direct correlation between what we uh, consume and what we're exposed to and what's upstream from us and uh, long-term health and wellness has really uh, become a mainstream understanding. And the combination of a high level of consumer interest and demand in cleaner products, more natural products, uh, less, uh, call it inputs, whether it's hormones, antibiotics, uh, chemical fertilizers, et cetera, in our supply, along with the growth uh, in those areas, which means lots of capital available, And because larger uh, CPG companies have been a few steps behind, there's now this um, happy cliche of innovation through acquisition. So there's been a ready market for companies that scale for getting acquired by strategic buyers at attractive multiples, which again becomes this virtuous circle of more capital available for growth, great exits for investors and entrepreneurs, and so on and so on. So that's part of it. Part of it is uh, with the consolidation that's been occurring and larger CPGs getting involved, they frankly have been bringing a lot of their expertise in terms of making the products taste better, uh, better marketing, better understanding of the consumer. And so I think that's contributed a lot to the growth as well. 
Yeah, you just kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do you feel brands are adapting slash responding to this, both large and small? Because you see it across, you see it across the spectrum, and you see these these mom and pop niche products coming on that started up in their kitchen or in their garage, and then you've got the mega the mega companies, and they're all fighting for for space in here. I mean, how do you think that these companies are, are adapting to this consumer demand? Well, I mean, uh, there are so many stories out there of companies who started because they had a personal problem or someone in their family had a health issue that wasn't being solved by the marketplace. And so, um, you know, every single gluten-free, allergen-free, many non-dairy products, anything that had a sort of uh, specialized diet, restricted diet associated with it, often started because of a, a personal situation. And people, you know, took that on and came up with a, a better product. That's just, you know, one small sliver of the broad natural products uh, industry. Larger CPGs, you know, well-populated by um, well-educated, accomplished, really smart people often didn't have that, you know, impetus or uh, some of the, uh, you know, the structure of those companies, meaning, uh, a business had to be 200 million, 300 million within so many years, or it wouldn't move the needle, uh, was probably one of their biggest obstacles. So there was this canopy, there was this umbrella of which all these smaller companies could operate underneath, uh, without that much, uh, competition or interference. So when you're a, $5 million business, $10 million business. It might be a very fine business for you, but it's the proverbial rounding error for the larger uh, CPG company. You know, there was lots of opportunities uh, to enter. There were a few barriers to entry. Uh, some companies could bootstrap. Some companies could round up uh, sort of a, a friends and family round to get started. And by companies launching into the natural channel, it tended to be very receptive and it tended to be a much less expensive, more forgiving, good match with the consumer in terms of companies um, coming out into the market. Now, of course, uh, this being 2018 and all, uh, you have so many more opportunities with all the e-commerce, online, direct-to-consumer, which I think is fantastic for smaller emerging brands uh, breaking into the market. That's a great point. This idea of, of, of innovation, I mean, there are some bigger CPGs that are doing it and doing it well. Most are struggling. But as you said, I mean, most of the big CPGs are buying their way into this category. They're acquiring smaller companies. I mean, there's a few companies, I think, that the, like the big CPG world that, that have done a good job of adapting. You know, I think Heinz, they've adapted some of their legacy brands, like their catch-ups into the natural space. Campbell's sure. has done a decent job. Who are some other big CPGs that have done a good job or are doing a good job at bringing some of their legacy brands or adapting to this space? Um, they're obviously all acquiring at the same time, but some of them are innovating within their, their legacy legacy brands. Yeah, well, I mean, two that come to mind uh, right away are, well, there's probably at least uh, more than two, but I would say one is General Mills with their acquisition of Annie's and able to really create a whole sort of natural products division within General Mills, where they could bring a lot of focus for a while, led by John Foraker, who really 
uh, was a conscience over there and in terms of uh, espousing, you know, the values of the industry and bringing that to a large company like General Mills. I'm thinking of uh, Campbell's, where they uh, might have started with the acquisition of Bolthouse, but then uh, went on and did a number of other uh, acquisitions to remake them, including Snyder's Lance moving into healthier snacks. Uh, Pepsi, of course. I think I think Pepsi uh, clearly recognized a while ago the need to move away from sugary soft drinks and unhealthy salty snacks such as Frito-Lay, and they really aggressively moved into uh, healthier products across the board. And um, that'll be the legacy of the departing uh, CEO. So other than not necessarily looking at it from small companies or big companies or really different CPGs, who, who do you think are some of the top innovators in this overall space right now? Like who, who is yeah. really coming out with, with the, the most creative stuff that's hitting this market right where it's at? Well, one of the first companies that come to mind is Calafia. Uh, they seem to be innovating at the speed of light. Uh, at every new trade show, they have an astonishing number of new items. So they are in the non-dairy space for beverages, but they're also doing things like cold-brewed coffee. Uh, they're now doing cultured products. Uh, they're also doing juice products. So lots of beverages, especially. The whole non-dairy uh, area is very fertile. Uh, Forager Project is doing a lot of interesting uh, and innovative new products, Good Karma, with their flax milk and flax milk yogurts and drinkable yogurts. And even a small company that I did some advising to called Nut Pods, uh, which does a non-dairy coffee creamer with almond milk and coconut milk, has just seen huge growth. They started with Kickstarter. They then went on to Amazon. They've been killing it on Amazon. And now they're uh, expanding into traditional uh, bricks-and-mortar retail. Uh, but these are just, you know, four examples in non-dairy that are doing, um, you know, really interesting and exciting things. Yeah, that's that's cool. And there are some companies that are doing some incredible, incredible things out there. But I'm always amazed. I mean, even even to this day, we'll meet with food and beverage companies and talking to them. And, and one of the things that, that we'll say to them is doesn't seem like you're spending a lot of resources in, in the area of innovation and in developing in this space. And some of them will say, yeah, we're 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 working on that or we're trying to get into this space. And to me, that's that's just Insane. I mean, this is such a hot topic, and it's been such a hot topic that brands, if if they're not taking this serious now and they're not in it up to their eyeballs, I just I just can't understand how they're going to be relevant in five years. I mean, how can brands do a better job at this innovating in this space? Well, it's it's really um, getting out there. I mean, um, I, I don't want to sound like a, a pat answer, but so much innovation comes from you know listening to the consumer. Uh, frankly, sometimes it's listening to the trade where uh, retailers and, and others will be looking for items that they've uh, been seeing either in restaurants or emerging trends, emerging ingredients that have been coming out. And so more often than not, a lot of the companies that I've worked with and have been involved with in the past, uh, their innovation is coming from both their retail customers and what they're hearing from uh, in consumers. Uh, sometimes it's just, you know, you've got very creative leaders, you know, again, going back to Calafia with Greg Steltenpol uh, and having a good team around him where 
they are seeing opportunities with emerging ingredients and other things that are becoming popular with consumers. And you also have uh, now in every city in the country these sort of hotbeds of cool, trendy areas. I mean, it used to be okay, there's Brooklyn, there's Austin, there's Boulder, Colorado. And I would say today, uh, every city in the country has their version of that. And you're seeing that with craft beer, you're seeing it with craft distilling, you're seeing it with cool uh, restaurants and ethnic restaurants and other things like that. And what's coming out of that are products that are just new to a lot of consumers. But again, they might be part of a... um, a rich uh, international tradition, ethnic tradition, or otherwise uh, be part of an emerging diet. So whether you're someone who's following a Whole30 diet or a paleo diet or a keto diet, there are a lot of uh, products that are solving problems for people trying to stick to sometimes these hard to uh, comply and conform with uh, diets. And that that drives some innovation as well. That's a great point about the little hot spots around and even outside the city. So I'm from outside the Philadelphia area. Not only in Philly is there a lot of hotbeds, but even in the suburbs, there's just these little towns and communities that are just bastions of innovation and just cool shops and cool products. And I think millennials have really been driving that as far as these many, many communities of just cool, innovative, better-for-you type products and food and beverage. Absolutely. And, and, and part of it, you know, going along with millennials is, is just, you know, uh, people living in urban areas. The whole notion of, of people sort of my age uh, creeping towards empty nesterhood uh, aren't thinking about retiring like our parents might have thought about retiring, you know, to Florida, to uh, Scottsdale, you know, play golf, uh, lay on a beach. Uh, most people my age are looking to, you know, as the next chapter is, you know, living in a city. And the same thing with people under 40, uh, it seems uh, a lot of millennials and others are really seeking out sort of urban living. And so now you have these very high concentrations of largely uh, better educated, a little more affluent, a little more sophisticated people flocking to our urban areas, and they're seeking out interesting places to eat, to shop, to drink, to, to get together. And I, and I think that just becomes this uh, fertile area for a lot of this innovation. Yep, absolutely. When I see a brand that has an authentic, genuine story that supports a great product, I see huge potential for success. But I know this can be a challenge for many CPGs, large and small. I mean, I've, I've seen even even small brands that have an incredible story of, of where they came from and how they're developing their product, but they can't articulate it into a story. And consumers love a story. I mean, it pulls us in. It draws us in. What, what's your experience with the, this whole idea of a story behind these brands? It's everything. And again, this is not origi- an original idea, but storytelling is what branding in, in, in marketing is in our current era. And um, authenticity is essential. Um, consumers are really hungry to know uh, whose passion brought these products to market. What's their backstory? What's their creation myth? Um, what are their values, personality? Uh, how these products you know, came to be in the market? And 
that's something that large uh, CPGs uh, have a hard time, you know, doing. I mean, you, you know, you're not going to come up with an idea in a focus group and then validate it through consumer research and then go through a stage gate process uh, and end up with that same uh, authenticity as an entrepreneur who's inspired or has a problem that's not being solved in the market. Consumers these days, they spot that phoniness in a second. They do. And companies like that that are more or less making it up or trying to position it that way, they lose when, when they try to do that. And by having that authenticity, uh, you're able to really build an emotional connection with the consumer, which is, uh, you know, essentially what brand building and, and uh, brand loyalty is all about. And it's it's a key part of creating value in a company. Yep. So getting back to your point about larger CPGs that struggle with this idea of authentic, genuine story. I mean, I know that there are some of these bigger brands out there that are trying to, you know, legitimately change and legitimately bring an authentic story. But oftentimes you hear with consumers that, oh, that's big so-and-so, you know, global international company. They're just out to get me no matter what. I mean, how how can these big CPGs work diligently in changing their story? What can they bring to this space that people, people are going to believe? I mean, I often remember we've done work in the natural products industry for, for many years, and I remember, you know, even back in, back in the 90s when the bigger companies would even try to come in with some of these products, they would just almost get rejected by the, the, the natural and organic products diehards to say, these guys are just, they're just never going to make it in this space. Yeah. But how, how, can they, how can they do it? I mean, the ones that legitimately want to change and want to be in this space and want their story to be told, how, what, what's some advice you can give them? Well, there's a, there's a few different thoughts, right? So, so one is um, when they're genuinely changing their practices and behaviors and doing good things. And again, one one uh, example is General Mills supporting regenerative agriculture. Another is Kellogg's through Kashi uh, supporting transitional organics. You know. Uh, there's a there's a, a steep expense and, and learning curve for farmers to go from conventional to organic, and so uh, Kashi is starting to make a market for products labeled as transitional organic, where they're getting a you know a premium over conventional. They're paying the farmers more, and it really helps eventually create more organic acreage. So. You know, getting that story out to consumers, I think, will really resonate. Another is when these larger global companies are acquiring uh, smaller natural brands, uh, the, you know, a, a good practice, a best practice has been sort of letting them run autonomously, you know, leaving them alone, letting them keep their own identity to the trade and consumer generally uh, letting them operate remotely, not bringing them into the mothership. And, and that has been a really good practice over the years uh, that separates the ones that continue to thrive, even though they're part of a larger uh, organization, versus the ones that uh, get smothered. Mm -hmm. I think Hershey has been doing a decent job at that over the past five or so years is allowing some of these smaller brands that they're acquiring to have, have autonomy and not necessarily use all of the same protocol and systems that they have. 
Exactly. I mean, just to just to stay on that for another minute. And in fact, I think I read that Hershey is. Uh, I, I might have remember reading that in maybe in Austin, they're having a, a sort of a, a emerging brands group, or you know, with Bark Thins and Dagoba and and some others, uh, which is really interesting. I, I just again, I, I think that practice of of sort of leaving them alone, letting them flourish, let them thrive while still benefiting from the scale, the sourcing, uh, and the other sophistication the larger uh, company can bring is, is a, a really good practice. Right. I mean, I think this story piece of it is something that, that the CPGs need to get a better handle on. But I think, too, it goes beyond that. It's, it's really understanding um, how to connect and how to communicate with this, this new breed of consumers, because it is a new breed of consumers. And, and one of the things that we're seeing is a lot of the large CPGs, so General Mills, Campbell's, Kellogg's, Coke, Pepsi, Danone, at least, have these um, incubators. And so it's a sort of a win-win where companies who are part of these programs get access to the resources of these large, sophisticated companies. So again, whether it's sourcing, whether it's managing uh, co-manufacturers, whether it's help with consumer insights and innovation, et cetera. And the larger companies are getting a window into how these small, innovative upstarts operate and what they're seeing for opportunities out there. And uh, in some cases, there's uh, investment. Uh, in other cases, uh, there might even be a, a right of first refusal. And in other cases, it's you know no strings attached. There is a lot of learnings to be gained out there by bigger companies. And I think what I've seen is they're starting to listen. You know, they're not rolling into these newer innovative companies and with these newer consumers and saying, hey, we know it all. We're the big guys. Do it our way. They used to do that. And now they're starting to listen more. And I think that, to me, is the key, is when they start to listen and learn and then adapt from that. Agree. Hey, so shifting gears a little bit. Plant-based foods, uh, meat alternatives, snacks, dairy, all this. I mean, this is this is the rage now, let's talk a little bit about this and uh, where you see it today, where you see it in the future, things that are driving this. Uh, just talk a little bit about this whole plant-based food rage. So to begin with, you know, th there's always been some amount of this in the natural products industry. And, and one of the um, well-known uh, brokers in the space, Bill Weiland of Presence Marketing, is fond of saying, you know, when he started in the business uh, 30 years ago, uh, vegans were, you know, 2% of the market. And now 30 years later, vegans are still 2% of the market. <laughs> and so in, in vegan is a little bit of a loaded word because uh, the difference between vegan and plant-based tends to be a little more politics and a little more, um, you know, uh, issues around animal welfare and, and things like that. So it's a little more charged. So shifting the conversation from vegan which might conjure up a, a lot of images, not all of them pleasant, to plant-based, I, I think was a good you know, move by a lot of uh, marketers. Uh, and I think what's really driving it is, you know, first of all, uh, most of these products are intrinsically healthier, lower fat, lower cholesterol, more nutritious, et cetera. The big driver for a lot of uh, mainstream consumers who aren't committed vegans or vegetarians for other reasons, is increasing understanding and awareness around the impact on the environment and around sustainability. 
so I think that has a bearing. And I also think the, the whole uh, bit about people who are sort of more transitional. So I'm not a committed uh, vegan or vegetarian, but we're working more of these things into our diet on a weekly basis. And so you may have heard of Meatless Mondays, uh, where people are trying to eat meatless you know, one day a week. And, and again, good for their health, good for the environment. And probably one of the biggest drivers for this growth is just better tasting products uh, than might have been around 20 years ago. And so uh, people like Beyond uh, Meat and Impossible Burger have really come out with some remarkably good tasting products, which I think is getting a lot of people to adopt these more uh, quickly, as well as seeing them on menus uh, uh, in restaurants and in cafes and and elsewhere. So I think that's a a big part of what's driving this. Yeah, you hit on something that I think is so, so crucial, this point about how good the food tastes nowadays. Look, I'm a huge health nut. Um, I eat right. I eat clean. Uh, I'm athletic, and I'm always engaging people in conversations. I'll, I'll talk to people that, that I see eating things that just aren't aren't good, and I'll say, man, you know, the refined sugars and the refined flours and these processed foods, man, they're killing you. And the one thing people often say, boy, I just love my pastas, though, and I'll say, man, there are so many good plant-based pastas out there that you can get anywhere. Just go to into any supermarket into their natural organic section and you'll see dozens of plant-based pastas and they'll say, really? I didn't know that. I, I, I think I think awareness is such a key thing here that some of these brands, they just, they stick within that niche of people. They stick within that audience of people who are buying this stuff on a regular basis and they don't realize that mainstream America will eat this. They'll love it. And it just it's just not out there enough. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a well-accepted fact that, you know, people eat a lot of the same products all the time. You know, supermarkets who do studies of consumers show that something like 80 or 85 or 90 percent of their shopping list is the same shopping list week in and week out throughout the year, except for uh, sort of seasonal and holiday variations. So people get into a little bit of a rut. And only when they're exposed to something new or they have a diet issue or something like that will they uh, try something uh, new. And just to stay on your point around taste, a perfect example is uh, the whole arc of gluten-free. You know, so people are fond of saying, you know, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever, the stuff tasted like cardboard, right? So it tastes like cardboard, but it won't kill you. Then the next generation of gluten-free was, hey, we don't taste like cardboard, but it was kind of nutritionally void. Uh, It was stuff made with rice flour and potato flour. And so, you know, someone who had a gluten intolerance or celiac disease could consume it, but it really wasn't much better than white flour. Um, And now there are so many great products out there that are gluten-free that are made with ancient grains. Uh, They're essentially whole grain. They have protein. They have fiber. Uh, vitamins, minerals, et cetera. And, and so the current generation of a lot of these products, I mean, one example is um, Smart Flower Foods, which does uh, an amazing pizza. Uh, there's uh, Cauliflower Foods, which does a cauliflower pizza crust that's, you know, again, uh, all uh, sort of plant-based, if you will. 
and just great innovation in those directions. Look, I think that there is a demand, and, and these products are more and more and more accepted by mainstream. We did this branding assignment a uh, number of years ago for this plant-based snack, and you know we're in the midst of working on this, and we talked about where the product was going to be in the supermarket, and the CEO of the company said, look, I don't want to be in the natural and organic section anymore. I want to be in the mainstream snacking aisle because consumers out there, they will buy this product. It's a good product, and we can make it look good, the packaging, make it look appetite appealing. And and consumers want to take that better step. You know, they might not be full into, you know, the all vegetarian or, or a completely healthy living, but but they all want to take that better step. I can do a better step today by maybe giving my kids this snack. And man, he was right. That snack went from a few million dollars in sales a year up to skyrocketing past 50 million in in, in a few years. And it's still growing. So there there is demand out there, no question. Yeah. And and, and part of the challenge for uh, brands has been uh, when you went into conventional retail, so when you went into mainstream supermarkets and Mass merchandisers, you know, Target, Walmart, Costco, et cetera. The costs of entry into the sort of natural section when there was these sort of like natural stores within a store was a lower cost of entry. The hurdle rates, you know, in other words, the weekly velocities to stay on the shelf were much lower. And the cost to advertise and things like that were lower than if you were in the mainstream section. And so back when I was at Stonyfield, we had the same uh, aspiration as the snack company you mentioned, where we didn't want to be in that natural section. We wanted to be in the dairy case competing against brands like Dannon and YoPlay and others. And um, when you do that, the, uh, the sort of the risk ratchets up, the investment levels ratchet up, but the upside is, you know, so much greater, yeah. needless to say. And Absolutely. so... It's, it's a strategic decision for a lot of brands and sometimes just based on reality as far as what resources they have and uh, what's their tolerance for that risk. Mm-hmm. So on another note, I mean, companies and brands are taking this idea of clean label very seriously. And in fact, it's not just less ingredients and cleaner ingredients. I mean, it's less packaging, less waste. I mean, less is more today, right? Yeah, I mean, when you see large uh, CPGs, whether it's Mars or Hershey or Campbell's, who will announce that they're taking artificial ingredients uh, out of their product, I mean, that's that, that's them uh, meeting the consumer where, where the world is going these days. And also, uh, interestingly, Walmart, uh, who to some people might be like the boogeyman, uh, is one of the most sustainable uh companies in the world in terms of, you know, even if their zeal is driven by wringing cost out of the system, they're really uh, challenging manufacturers and others around reducing packaging, shipping more efficiently, reducing their carbon footprint, even with the end goal might be retaking cost out of the system. Ultimately, it's also better for the environment. And the same goes with Amazon in terms of uh, reducing a lot of packaging uh, that would be different than what you might do uh, for products going into retail. Right. 
Hey, as I said, I'm a big enthusiast towards eating better and eating healthy. But one of the other things I hear from friends that I talk to about leading a lifestyle like this is they say, man, it's expensive. It's expensive to buy natural and organic foods. I mean, do you see this continuing uh, or do you see it leveling out as far as uh, the, the price of, you know, better for you food compared to everyday, everyday food? Yeah, I, I still think it's going to be a little more expensive for a while. I mean, we we have been spoiled, I think, uh, in the U.S. Uh, around having cheap food. Uh, so whether it's government subsidies, whether it's uh, inexpensive ingredients like high fructose corn syrup that might be supported by, uh, you know, subsidies for, for corn crops and things like that. So I think our frame of reference might be a little distorted to begin with. However, as these products become mainstream, whether it's clean ingredient products, whether it's verified non-GMO, whether it's certified organic, I do see the uh, premiums uh, leveling out. I do see these products becoming more accessible. And, you know, again, we're witnessing these products becoming mainstream. The largest organic grocer in the U.S. today is Costco, uh, and they provide a lot of value to their members. Um Pretty much every supermarket chain in the U.S. has a well-developed private label program for natural and organic products, and these are more accessible and, and a good value uh, to consumers as well. And so uh, whether it's uh, Amazon, uh, Walmart, Costco, Target, supermarket chains, etc., cetera, uh, I do see these products becoming more affordable, and not the least of which, I mean, Whole Foods, who I've always admired and, and, and respected, but couldn't live down the moniker of Whole Paycheck, it is really, um, you know, with the um, acquisition by Amazon, has really worked hard to uh, try to live down that image and to, at least on some of their top items, you know, take price reductions to, uh, again, make them more accessible. Yeah, I think they had to. I mean, they're really losing market share to these everyday retailers that have awesome sections now for, for natural and organic foods. So where food comes from is a big deal. I mean, whether yeah. you're dealing with local companies or local farms or people, it just goes beyond just simply source verification. What are your thoughts on, on, on this idea of I want to know where my food comes from? I want to, I want to know the story behind it. I just I, I want to know. Well, it's everything today. I mean, uh, transparency and supply chain is absolutely huge. Um, some companies do it better than others. You know, um, I'm on the board of uh, a terrific company called King Arthur Flower, and on some of their items, uh, they'll have a QR code uh, that you can uh, take a picture with your phone, and it'll show you the farm where that bag of flour came from, which is, you know, absolutely amazing. A lot of retailers like Whole Foods and others will challenge suppliers especially uh, for certain categories on where they're sourcing these products. So whether it's uh, palm oil or whether it's uh, ethical sourcing around cacao and chocolate products, they really want to understand uh, where those products are being sourced, which you know helps these manufacturers really understand the supply chain better. One of the, one of the byproducts of the whole uh, growth around verified non-GMO was helping uh, manufacturers understand the supply chain better in terms of uh, where that stuff was coming from. And it wasn't, you know, uh, too vague or misty or indecipherable. 
Yeah. And I think but, there's, there's another piece of this, too, that consumers connect with is this, this humanitarian aspect that, okay, this company sources from, you know, the farms in, in, in Honduras and, you know, the money's going right to the farmers and it's helping the community. And I think, you know, people feel better about that. And especially the millennial generation, they want to connect with brands that have that humanitarian, that fair trade uh, aspect about it. So it really goes beyond just simply where it comes from, but they're connecting at that at that emotional level with consumers that they almost feel like, hey, I'm helping to contribute to to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so years ago, I was on the board of Equal Exchange, which was the first uh, fair trade uh, coffee company in the U.S., and they really pioneered that movement here. And since then, uh, I've also been involved with people like Runa, uh, sourcing Wayusa from Ecuador, and in doing so, you know, working with the indigenous people there, creating a foundation, really making sure that a lot of the, uh, you know, the the added value went back to the producers, and they just weren't, you know, selling commodities at prevailing prices. Uh, so there's definitely a greater sensitivity around that, uh, going back to. Uh, among consumers about not only where this comes from, but the social justice aspect of it uh, beyond, you know, clean ingredients and organic ingredients and all that. Yep, absolutely. What do you think of B Corps? I mean, is this is this important for food brands these days? Is it important for them to really to get that level of credibility with, with consumers? Well, well again, um, I, I do have a, a fair amount of familiarity. I mentioned uh, King Arthur Flower, whose board I'm on. They're a uh, B Corp, and they really live that. All of the uh, evaluations, all of the objectives for their leadership team and and, uh, throughout the company are built around B Corp measures. So it's not just maximizing profit, but engagement with the community and suppliers and the environment, you know, governance and and, uh, people in the organization. So it's it's a very, very important thing. But as far as, you know, its impact on the business, I, I would say it almost has a little more currency in the trade than awareness among consumers. So I think it's still early days among the majority of consumers having a clue about what a B Corp is. But as more companies become B Corps and they're putting it on their package and they're uh, putting it on their websites and they're educating uh, consumers about what that stands for, I think it'll, you know, return some value to the companies beyond uh, the intrinsic value of doing the right thing. But in the short term, I do think, at least in the natural channel and among certain retailers, it carries some weight and I think they get some credit for it. So, Superfood, superfood. It seems like every day there's a new superfood coming onto the market. And even I'm, I'm looking at these things and saying, boy, I really should add that to my smoothie in the morning. That'll even make it a super superfood. I mean, is, yeah. <laughs> is the word superfood losing significance or, or, or meaning or credibility uh, out there? Is it being over? Is it being overplayed? I, I don't know if it's being overplayed. I mean, a little of it might be that sort of like magic bullet phenomena of, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could eat this food and live a long time or wellness and and all of that. Uh, So there's a little bit of that operating. Also, a a lot of times these are foods that have been around forever that are sort of being rediscovered. 
And it wasn't that long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, for example, chia seed was an example of, okay, people vaguely heard of uh, chia pets maybe, but it wasn't something you ate every day. But when Mama Chia came out and other people, Chia Pods and the Chia Company promoting Chia, and all of a sudden people were scratching their heads saying, wow, this has all these amazing omega-3s, it has all these antioxidants, it has uh, all these, uh, you know, this amazing nutritional profile. I had no idea. Uh, and then it seemed like every week there was somebody coming out that had more antioxidants than blueberries, you know, which was already known to be off the charts in antioxidants. So, I, I, you know, I think that'll just be part of the business and part of the industry as far as, you know, I think uh, one of the uh, it ingredients uh, in the last couple of years was like moringa, for example, or maca uh, or matcha you know, ground green tea. Uh, so there, there'll always be things that come in and out of uh, vogue in terms of being a little faddish, and sometimes they'll stick, and sometimes they'll go away uh, if they're either discredited or they don't taste good or they're hard to source. But I, I think it's just, you know, part of the business. Yeah, yeah. The Chia Pet did a great job of uh, driving awareness for chia seeds. People just didn't know they could eat their Chia Pet, right? <laughs> <laughs> Evidently. Yeah. Hey, so what do you see as the top like emerging trends? Like what's coming next? What's the next big thing? What's the next game that's changer a, that's out there? That's 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 an under high end softball question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, one. Yeah, I I think uh C B D is the it ingredient right now. It's just exploding. And uh there's a little bit of you know, murkiness around the regulatory environment in terms of, you know, federal standards. But I'm referring to CBD from hemp, so less than 0.03% THC, no psychoactive substances, et cetera. And just anecdotally hearing amazing stories, like not snake oil, but just hearing amazing stories about how it helps with sleep, how it helps with pain relief and, you know, anti-inflammatory benefits uh, in starting to see it show up uh, in a whole range of sort of supplements, but also being incorporated into food products, uh, you know, cold brew coffee with CBD and gum and mints with CBD. And I think we're going to be seeing it just absolutely uh, expand at an incredible rate. And, you know, again, this is all hearsay gossip, innuendo, but I hear it's really helping to keep independent health food shops uh, viable and active and alive because, um, you know, they're making a good margin on it. They're getting a good price for it. People are really seeking it out. Uh, I heard from an industry friend of mine whose daughter has epilepsy that he is, you know, probably spending uh, 400 bucks every other week, but clamoring to get it you know, really trying to seek it out because it really works in his uh, case with his daughter. And so getting uh, getting a lot of value. I think that's a big one. The other one uh, that I think is uh, gaining awareness is this whole category of uh, so-called adaptogens. So these are herbs and other ingredients, some of which are part of the Ayurvedic tradition. Uh, they modulate, help modulate the body's response to stress. They um, 
you know, boost your immune system. And you're seeing them in, in products like uh, Rebel. Uh, you're seeing them in uh, products like uh, Four Sigmatic, the mushroom teas. Uh, and then, you know, products that, you know, have ginger and turmeric and, and other things like that have been uh, growing for a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show. I mean, I know the audience has, has gotten some great tidbits of knowledge um, from your experience. But uh, before we sign off, why don't you give a plug for your business and, and what you're doing and how brand managers can get a hold of you, how they can work with you? Sure. I, I never tire of uh, speaking about myself. <laughs> uh, so I, I would say to begin with, if anyone was interested, they could please go to uh, naturalconsulting.com, which has my background, my services, my clients, but also information on my natural products field manual, uh, which just came out with the eighth edition. I've been doing it with a, a longtime industry friend and partner of mine named Rick McKelvey, uh, who has a similar uh, background and experience to me, where it's a very comprehensive how-to guide, reference book for bringing products to market, four volumes, 44 chapters. Uh, there is a flash drive with databases of stores, distributors, brokers, uh, contract sales managers, budget models. There's also 100,000 grand in coupons, mainly from service providers, from uh, industry-leading experts. And then I bundle a half-day consulting with the manual. I also uh, do seminars a couple times a year, I do a, a two-day sales seminar with another partner of mine, John Majuri. We do it every December in Boston, and then usually uh, every spring alternating Chicago and San Francisco. And I also do a one-day on raising capital uh, with Mike Bergmeier from Whitstip uh, Capital. So we cover things like uh, deal structure, valuation term sheets, and we always have a couple of leading VCs, a strategic an angel, a family office, a debt expert, as well as an entrepreneur who shares their journey. So all this is on that uh, website, uh, naturalconsulting.com, and people can reach me simply by bob at naturalconsulting.com. Excellent. I'm sure you'll be roaming the floors at uh, Natural Products East next month, so people can probably run into you there, right? That would be a good bet, yes. Yep, yep. Bob, thanks again uh, for coming on the show. Uh, loved it. Just some great, great stuff. And, and really appreciate being here. Thanks, Jamie. Yep. This is Jamie Allabach, and you've been listening to The Peppered Podcast, where we have seasoned talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. Let's grow your brand together. <laughs>